Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence. So you'll create those products that customers actually love, and that's what we want to do. Are your products not generating the revenue they should just because you had to price them right? It's uh, kind of too common of a problem, actually. Pricing is a key concern of not only product managers and leaders, but also the executives of organizations, your executives. Knowing the right price for a product, it's a challenge, especially if the product is new to the market. You know, you don't have data for that yet. So how do you determine the right price? If your pricing strategy resembles a dartboard, as it often does, I've been there too, there's a better way. You just need to know the steps and what data to collect to determine the right price. Our guest, CEO and co-founder of ProfitWell, Patrick Campbell, is a pricing pro, and he shares the steps to determine the price of any product. Before founding ProfitWell, he served as an economist at Google and had some other roles as well. Now, if you've listened before, you know you can find all the key points that we discuss written up in a nice summary form for you, and that's at the show notes for this episode at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 221. Check those out. Get a summary. Make sure you know this information because it's really valuable. I get asked about pricing a lot, and that's why I found Patrick, a real expert to help us understand pricing better. Now, hope you enjoy the discussion. Patrick, welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Let's uh, let's talk about some innovation and product, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you have an interesting background. As an undergrad electrical engineering student, one of my disappointments was I was in a economics for engineering class for about two weeks, and I dropped it. Uh-oh. I dropped it because <laughs> it was an elective, and I didn't need the credits. Me and, and economic thinking just don't get along. And then later I heard from my friends that it was such a good class that the instructor was really good, and I, I felt disappointed. I mm. did not take advantage of that situation. One of my regrets from college is I didn't take as many engineering classes as I want. <laughs> and we can share in our regret, essentially. Over a drink, we can talk about uh, what we should have expanded our brains yeah. on, I suppose. <laughs> How we screwed everything up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it's a good thing I know people who have those skills and you're an economist turned pricing strategy expert. I'm just always curious about people's background and how they ended up doing what they're doing. What was that path like? You know, it's kind of funny. I, I you know, I come from a very like blue collar background. I, I grew up in Wisconsin. I went to school in Illinois, and um, I was, uh, you know, typical standard generation after the blue collar is I wanted to go be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And uh, I got pretty obsessed though with using data for some sort of outcome. Mm-hmm. So rather than just like, oh, let's analyze this and, you know, let's figure out this theory. It was more like, no, 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 I want to, I want to know the answer to um, moving this number up or down or, or whatever we're trying to do. And so um, that actually led me to, uh, I started my career working in the U.S. intelligence community. Huh. Uh, so I worked in D.C. for a little while. And, and that's very much, you know, taking data, taking, you know, just kind of critical thinking and then utilizing that knowledge or that data to, you know, um, you know hunt bad guys and gals, if yeah. you will, to just like super simplify it. And uh, it was working for the government, though. And so that was wasn't um, ex- it wasn't as exciting, um, and I was a young, you know, hubris-filled kid, you know, who wanted to take over the world, and so in a good way, I, right. not in like 
<laughs> and so uh, I, uh, I left and I jumped into tech and that's how I got to Boston. I, I got a job at Google. And Google was, um, you know, another bureaucracy. I didn't realize it, you know, cause I was like, oh, this is the, you know, the cradle of innovation. Everything's amazing. Right. And, um, it was great. It was, it was a, one of the best places like I have ever worked it's somewhere. I'd love to retire one day for a retirement type job or something. Um, but there I, I was in a sales role or kind of like a sales adjacent role. And I was, I was more interested in like sales ops, which was, understanding like how do I make the team better? How do I, you know, make my book of business better? And so I built this, you know, fun little algorithm and model uh, to basically, uh, it's basically a, a sophisticated lead scoring model for my, my sales side. Hmm. And that's where I was like, oh, interesting. Like I was using data in kind of a similar way to, you know, uh, hunt bad guys or gals. Now I'm using data to hunt money. Um, you know, there's something with this data thing. And you know, being again, still hubris ridden, you know, early 20 year old, I, I was like, oh, I'm going to go jump into the startup world because um, mm-hmm. I can fail and all that kind of fun stuff. So I worked at a company that had, um, I was kind of like a strategic initiatives guy, which is just, hey, um, you know, we got to go figure this out from basic problems all the way to like gnarly, crazy problems. And one of the problems was pricing. Mm. And so that's, that's kind of where I applied this. And I started to notice, you know, we, we do so much with building product and we do so much with, you know, building, you know, putting so much soul into something that we're trying to put out into the world that, you know, is valuable. And then all of a sudden it comes time to put a number on that value. And and we just kind of go, Oh, just put it out there, put a nine at the end of it and we'll call it a day. Right. Right. And so, um, that was, you know, I wasn't really happy, you know, there's a theme here. Uh, I wasn't really pumped about the, uh, the place I was working. Um, and so I was like, all right, I'm going to go jump out on my own. Um, and so that's, that's essentially what I did. And, um, you know, it's been six years now and, you know, product has changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those things where, um, that's how I got into the pricing and now wider kind of, uh, um, you know, Al- uh, subscription algorithmic space, I guess, is the way that you would uh, would describe it. It's interesting that we share that intelligence background. Early on, I was also involved in creating products, creating systems to help identify the bad guys, and uh, worked with a lot of intelligence analysts. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, for something to use there. The story of you getting to where you are now, you know, your niche is in that that software subscription space, the SaaS sort of space yeah. now. But I appreciate you having a background that's much broader than that and looking at different kinds of pricing sort of approaches. And at ProfitWell that you created on how can we do a better job of analyzing our our pricing strategy for SaaS-based solutions, I'm curious how much that flows over to other areas. Just so listeners know, is this going to be really a talk about SaaS or is it broader than that? Yeah, it's it's definitely broader in in a pricing context. So we we primarily serve the subscription space, but we actually started off um, pretty agnostic um, to the type of company it was. We worked mm-hmm. with uh, Hallmark, um, you know, the greeting card company. We worked with Reebok. We worked with a couple of other companies, but and and. The model and the, the the ideas are are very very applicable to any type of business. I think for our data models or our data, excuse me, and our algorithms, like we want to fine tune those to a specific industry. So that's just mm-hmm. kind of you know, if you're a non subscription company, it's probably we're probably not a good fit from a customer standpoint. But all of our content is probably actually a really good fit because it's very similar. Okay, so the things that we we come up against for developing a pricing strategy are applicable across many domains. So this will be a really good conversation for listeners dealing with. It's one of the questions I get asked quite a bit: is help help mm-hmm. me think about product pricing and what path to go down. So I'm excited yeah. to do that. It's a big one. 
Let's start with a, a context here. Maybe there's a real-world example or a hypothetical one that you can put together for us on how we can move forward with this. And the more challenging example for me is typically a new product, right? Something that we don't necessarily – we would, as an organization, have any historical data on. Maybe there's not even really good benchmarks in the marketplace. I think that's the more challenging place to start. But do you have a, an example that you could share with us? You know, a good example, you know, might be like, let's say, you know, we're starting um, – you know, a CRM, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, maybe even more basic, let's say we're starting, you know, uh, a media sites where uh, we're going to publish information about a specific niche um, or videos or content of some sort, right? Um, and I think that in all of these examples, no matter the example we use, and, and we can use whichever one that you, you want to pick if we were going to talk further about it, okay. um, I think that the biggest thing to understand is that it's not about your existing data in a lot of places, especially when you're first starting out because there is no data, right? right? But even if you've been around for a long time, it's not that existing data is helpful, but it's really about getting the fresh data uh, from your customers in a particular manner in order to properly understand the value from that customer's perspective. Uh, and, and this is where a lot of folks like go wrong is they go to competitive benchmarks. They go to every, you know, all kinds of different, um, you know, other data that's out there. And the problem with that is that, you know, your customers are, are, you know, they don't care about your costs, for example, they care about their costs. So if you find out that their willingness to pay is lower than your costs, well, you have to go find a new customer right. or you have to. Cost, right? You don't just, oh, we're just going to raise the price. Similarly, with competitors, you're assuming your competitors have done their pricing homework. And I can say pretty definitively that with rare exception, your competitors have not done their homework when it comes to pricing. And you're also assuming that they're selling the same product to the same type of customer, which is true in some industries. But even in some competitive industries like content or in um, you know a CRM space, uh, it's, it's just not the case. And so it's really about this, and this is what's called value-based pricing mm-hmm. that you really need to go deep on. Yeah, I remember when I was leading a professional services group inside a startup organization, Mm -hmm. and our sales manager said, we're going to use value pricing as our pricing strategy. And my ears perked up and I went, oh, I wonder what that really means. I I understand the word value. (laughs) No one really explains it. Yeah, (laughs) Right. Um, And so, But that was my first introduction to kind of this thought. And I like what you said about competitors following what they might be doing. Too often, our competitors don't have things right. They, they haven't done the deep homework either to understand what, what really brings value to our customers. So we, we need insights into that ourselves. Yeah. I, I like the CRM context. There, there's a backstory. It's a case study that I've used before. There was this company called MarketSoft. They did a lot of deep research to understand what were the needs of marketing groups to help put together a new CRM solution. Mm. And they should have been wildly successful. They, they were doing all the right things. But there was this little trend going on in the marketplace at the time called software as a service. Yeah. And, and they just missed it, right? They designed their solution as a client-server solution. 9-11 happened at the same time. That changed the economy uh, Ugh, in a so big tough. way. Right. And companies were no longer willing to you know, pay for upfront for these larger systems, these enterprise systems. Yeah. And sales logic shows up on the scene as a subscription-based service. And that's who we remember now, You know, who we think of as a CRM solution this changing of the pricing model, that itself created a lot of value there, changing how it was delivered as a SaaS solution. So <laughs> yeah. uh, that's the CRM story. So that provides us a good context. Let's go down that path. Say that, that you and I put together a CRM startup. We had some insights into uh, some unmet needs that customers had, and we thought we could do this better. Mm. And those unmet needs now should create some new, new value. 
where do we start with this? We need to start thinking about our pricing strategy and what influences that. That's a great place to start is, is where do you start? Um, so I think that the number one thing you have to start with is who you're targeting. And this is a little bit of a, you know, chicken or the egg situation where, um, basically, the number one piece when it comes to your pricing is getting to what we've kind of coined as persona pricing fit, hmm. which means that if I'm going to sell that CRM to enterprise security conscious companies, I might have to sell a perpetual license, something that's not SaaS, not subscription, right? If I'm selling to Johnny or Jane startups or the pizza shop next door or something, you know, small business, then, you know, an upfront cost and something that's not in the cloud is, is really inconvenient. Right. And, th- and that gets not only into the pricing and how you structure it, but even like your product. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, what we end up doing is we, we get hooked on an idea and we see the need and then we really rationalize, you know, how oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be perfect. And then, you know, we kind of just start brute forcing the way that we grow. Right. And so what I recommend doing like very specifically is to sit down and you know something about your customer. Even if you're just starting off, you, the reason you're going into this space is because you have an idea about them, you know them. Um, or if you're more established, you, you have a lot of like data or insights or, or instinct about these customers. But literally just in a spreadsheet of some sort over the top, I would put the different profiles that of the customers that you're selling to in those columns. So for our CRM example, it might be, Hey, we sell the companies doing three to $10 million in revenue per year. And that's typically being sold to the CEO founder. Mm-hmm. And then we sell the companies doing, you know, 10 million to a hundred million. And that's typically the head of sales. And all of a sudden I have those two customers. And then along the, the rows of that spreadsheet, I would have a bunch of different categories around what are the most valued features? What are the least valued features? What do you think the willingness to pay looks like? What value metric, like how do they want to pay per user, uh, per license, per whatever, right? And then any other information that you think is relevant to your building, what you're building, what you're selling, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then just fill in, fill in those sections. Uh, and, you know, you're, you're in, I like to also put in like my confidence level. Uh, so if there's something that I'm like super confident in, I like to mark that versus something where I'm like, and a lot of the stuff's going to be like, I have no idea. Right. And so what that does is even just doing that exercise, not collecting any other data is you centralize your thinking around your packaging, your mm-hmm. pricing, et cetera. And then you can start having arguments with your team and say, well, we're building for so-and-so this, this three, 10 to hundred million dollar persona. Why are we building that feature? That's only interesting to the three, the three to $10 million persona, or, Hey, the pricing needs to match these folks versus those folks. Uh, And it's not always like that clear, but you've started to centralize that thinking. And then it becomes about collecting data to validate that particular, um, those particular assumptions, essentially. Excellent. So start with that. You use the word persona and we might think of this as a market segment. Some people might call it, call it a point of view. Who are we selling our product to? And there's going to be different levels of those. So in our startup, you know, maybe we have our, our eyes set on the 10 to a hundred million dollar year revenue company. and, And that's where we start. Good chances as we're learning more about them as time is going on, we find out, oh, there's actually some sub-segments here that have different sort of needs that, that we need to approach in a different way. As you're talking, the simple example that came to mind, you know, the larger company might need us to connect our CRM to the Oracle financial system, and the medium-smaller company, it might be you know, Great Plains uh, ERP or something. Yeah. Different things we have to integrate to. Totally. That's cool. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. 
We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. So we got our spreadsheet as a place to start with our segments. What comes next then in thinking about the pricing strategy? So now, now it becomes validating, right? So we, we might find out these two personas or maybe of three or four are completely wrong. We might find out that they're right, but the details that you have are wrong. Um, or we might find out that, you know, one in a million chance you're right about everything, right? Which is pretty rare, but you know, it, it's, it's, it's not, it hasn't happened, but you know, it's, it probably could happen, right? The next step is to essentially go out and actually get survey data for these individuals. And I know everyone kind of complains about surveys. And the reason we complain about surveys is because we are terrible as operators at sending surveys. Um, they're actually a really, really good tool to collect data from. You just have to ask in the right manner. So I have my trends from the 10 to 20 people that I talk to. Mm-hmm. Now I want to get 300 responses. And if you don't have 300 people, there are these market panelist companies that you can go to and basically buy access to right. individuals to answer survey questions. Um, anyone from you know soccer mom or dad all the way to a Fortune 500 CIO. They cost very different amounts of money, but they're you know accessible. Now I'm going to ask them you know in this survey. I'm going to verify that the person, if they answer, Hey, I don't do any, I do something besides sales. I'm going to kick them out. If they say I'm a different revenue, you know, amount, I'm going to kick them out. And then I'm going to show them the product and I'm basically going to give them a landing pages worth of information. So here's the product, here's the value, basically what I'm going to do on the landing page. Maybe there's a video, something like that. I'm going to ask them some check for understanding questions. So, Hey, does this product do X or true, false, this product does Y. And then if they get those wrong, I'm going to kick them out. And then I'm finally going to ask them some pricing questions. And I'll start off with some of those max diff questions. So, hey, here's these five features. What's the most important to you? What's the least important? And then when it comes to pricing, I'm actually going to use something called Ben Westendorp. Um, and you can make this much more complicated if you want. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to take advantage of the way that we think about value and I'm going to ask them questions like, at what point is this way too expensive that you would never consider purchasing it? All the way down to at what point is it too cheap that you question the quality of it? And with enough responses, you'll get the ability to basically put together an elasticity curve, which is basically a measure of if you adjust your price one way or the other, what's going to be the effect of gain or loss in sales. And the long story short is, is that basically with all of this data, you now can get a very clear picture depending on how you deploy these questions, because obviously you can ask about a lot of different things. You can start to validate those buyer personas in a way that will ultimately give you more confidence in, okay, cool, 
everyone says the price is between $10 and $15. So we want to be a little bit more acquisition-based. We're going to put the price at $10. Or Mm -hmm. we're okay being a little more premium. We're going to put it at $15. And the big thing here, just to kind of keep in mind, and I know it's a lot to kind of listen to on a podcast. It's probably a little bit easier to see some visuals with this. But the big thing to keep in mind is that you're not trying to be perfect. You're not trying to find a picture-perfect answer. What you're trying to do is basically hedge as much risk when it comes to understanding what these users are looking for and what these users actually value. And with that mindset, it becomes an iterative process as you come out with more product, as you want to go deeper, and as you want to continue to use pricing as a lever. So I'm going to pause there because that was just a ton of information and I'm sure I missed some stuff or was really confusing in some others. So I'll make sure that uh, give you give you a chance to kind of steer me in the right direction here. Well, the information was really good and we'll help clarify some in the show notes by you know laying out some of the details and we can provide some links to some other resources too. There was a podcast that we did that I did a while ago on a conjoint analysis. It's back in episode uh, 096, if people want to pick it up. Mm. And, and that's another tool that gets us to kind of this issue of let's look at a group of features and what is a, a customer's perception of that grouping of features. Mm. Kind of the change here is, and I'm not familiar with this term. You, you have to tell me again what this is when we're trying to build that price elasticity model. It was someone's name, the something? Uh, Van Westendorp. Yeah, it's Van this Dutch Westen. economist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you search Van anything, it'll, it'll come up because there's not a lot of Van anythings that are, that are out there. For those, those astute listeners that want to go look it up right now, Van Westendorp. The reason that these, it's an interesting thing you brought up with conjoint. And the reason that... I recommend using these is because doing a conjoint analysis is probably like it's a very accurate way to look at at least packaging. Um, pricing, it's problematic, mm-hmm. um, but it's also very cumbersome. Um, because if you think about conjoint, and for those of you who don't know, conjoint is, is it's kind of like a, um, a max diff, those most important, least important questions on steroids. Because right. what you're doing is you're taking every category of your product, and then you're taking every variation of each of those categories. So for a car, it would be the color could be green, blue, or purple. Um, the make could be, um, you know, a, a truck, a, um, you know, a van or a, a caravan of some sort, right? And you're taking every variation and then you're showing a, a respondent every variation of those particular variations and saying, which one do you prefer? This one or that one? This one or that one, right? And you can imagine with even a very simple product that becomes very, very mm-hmm. intense for a survey taker, right? Uh, and so what we recommend is if you deploy something like max diff and price sensitivity, we found you can get essentially um, the similar answer. We say it's 95% of what you would get with conjoint, which isn't, it's not, that's not a scientific, even though I'm using a number there comparison, but it's probably about 10% of the cost in terms of time and actual money. Um, and so for us, that's like really effective. And, and from a pricing perspective, Van Westendorp and some of the other models that you could use are actually a lot better than, than using conjoint for mm-hmm. that because Conjoint doesn't really get to pricing. Yeah, and as you're describing it, it actually sounds simpler, right, to put together a survey. The conjoint analysis surveys, either you're making a lot of assumptions ahead of time if you have some other information to base that on, or they're just really long because of all those combinations. Yeah. Yep. And this sounds a little bit more straightforward. If, if you were going to ask me to provide the information, and you gave me those choices, right? Here's here's kind of the, the four things that people said were most important to them rank them, right? Or just pull out which one's most, which one's least. We're starting to be able to narrow in on what are the key elements of value and what might you pay for the, that value. Yep, exactly. Okay. 
So this is all very exciting. And show notes, I'll try, try to provide links to resources to help people dive into this further too. So we have our survey. What do we do with this data? Then it becomes you know, earning your paycheck, basically. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's, there's ways that you, you should segment the hell out of this data, meaning every uh, demographic or every like, way that you can segment this data, you should. Because you're, you're looking for where things are different. You're basically looking for, oh, super interesting. As people get bigger, they're willing to pay goes up, which is something that, you know, naturally will just kind of happen. Um, and as, you know, XYZ happens, then, you know, this happens, right? So it, it's just one of those things where um, basically what you want to do is then take all of that data, analyze it as much as you can. And then the most important thing is put a deadline on making a decision for whatever change you're trying to go after. And the reason I put it that way is because you should never be going, oh, I'm going to set up my entire pricing or I'm going to reevaluate all of my pricing, my packaging, my price, my value metric, my positioning, all that other stuff. You should focus on one thing at a time. So maybe you fix your packaging one quarter and the next quarter you're going to look at the actual price point. And you'll, you'll notice with each of these kind of studies, there will be things that will influence the other thing that you're trying to do. But it's just one of those things that you really got to think about what that structure looks like and then get yourself in a position where you're actually doing things. Um, a lot of people, they just get this analysis paralysis and then they're like, oh, it's pricing. I've never done this before. Um, ah, let's just get more data. Let's just get more information. But you got to keep in mind your pricing, um, I guess, like fashion, like it's never actually finished. You're, you know, you're always going forward and you're trying to always perfect things. Um, and that's something you've really, really got to keep in mind. For someone that wanted to construct this analysis, you're going to do 10 to 20 customer interviews and dive into some qualitative information. Don't lead the witness. Try to really understand their problem and their, you know, how they think about the problem, the tasks they're trying to accomplish. And then back that into survey design and getting more detailed quantitative data to help us figure out a what our price sensitivities are. Is that work that you do at ProfitWell? Just where can people go if they want help with this sort of thing? For ProfitWell, our, our product called Price Intelligently, which is under the ProfitWell brand, um, this is what we do. Now, now okay. our models are, are a lot more sophisticated than the ones that I described. Um, because, you know, we get paid to do this and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where we can make it a lot more complicated because it's within our expertise. But yeah, we work with everyone from, you know, Lyft and Blue Bottle Coffee all the way to Atlassian and Autodesk on, uh, basically getting their pricing right. So it's certainly something that, you know, we can help with. And, uh, yeah, it, even if it's something where you just can't afford it, cause a lot of people starting off, it's like, not something where they're like, ah, I know I should probably do some work on this, but I don't want to spend any money because you don't want right. to spend any money when you're starting off. Um, we have a ton of resources. Everything that I just referenced, um, we've written either an article on, a book on, or just a ton of information on to, to kind of make it uh, make it happen. Great. We could dive into a whole lot more detail, I know, and, and take this further. I was just really excited about that clarity. I always appreciate when guests bring such clarity as you just did, Patrick. Thank you for helping us lead through a pretty straightforward pricing model just in terms of steps of doing those qualitative interviews. You know, 10 to 20 gives us a lot of information. Taking that data, using that to figure out how we would construct a survey and who we need to reach with that. And then asking the right questions will really let us build our, our pricing model from that and give us a place to start to take action from. Really excellent. As people know, I love innovation quotes. I often ask guests for them. What do you have for us and why did you choose that one? One of my favorite ones is success is a byproduct of excellence. I don't know if someone you know famous said that, but it was a coach back in the day that, that told me that. Hmm. And uh, it was it's something that when it comes to innovation, it's just 
if you just keep focusing on excellence, and excellence has lots of definitions, of course, but just keep focusing on that truth of what's good um, and, and making it better and better and better, you know, success comes. And, and sometimes we chase success with things rather than kind of focusing on the meat of things, and, and that makes things problematic. Right. I like that. Success is a byproduct of excellence. I have heard in the past that what is luck, right? L- luck is being prepared when the opportunity presents itself to you to you know, take what you know and put it to use. Yeah. That one, it's always just rubbed me a little bit the wrong way because it places the emphasis on luck, yeah. I think, more than the preparation. And this I like because it says, hey, success comes because you have done the hard work and you're prepared. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. Thanks for sharing that with us. How can people find out more about the work you're doing, the company that you created to help with pricing strategies and pricing analysis, ProfitWell? ProfitWell.com's got all the resources. Yep, that's our homepage. So you might have to click around to find you know the eBooks and things like that, but they're there. Okay. Um, I think for contacting me, just PC at ProfitWell.com. Um, it might take me a little while to get back to you, um, but I get back to everyone. And it's one of those things where you know I love to evangelize and you know ask questions or answer questions about you know what's going on in the world of pricing. And okay. um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn as well. So um, yeah, come find me, and you know always always up for connecting. Great. Patrick, thanks for your time. Thanks for the insights on crafting a pricing strategy. And we will go check out your resources. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. You know, this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. You can find those great, valuable show notes, the summary of the discussion with Patrick at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 221. I hope you check out that resource. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.